this evening from Revelation chapter 3 verses, uh, we are going to read verses 1 through 6 as we consider the need for revival. Listen now to God's word. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. May God write this word on our hearts. Sardis was a church that needed to wake up. They were slumbering and in need of the reviving work that only God can do. The psalmist put it this way. Will you not revive us again that your people might rejoice in you? So we want to think about revival, not just in Sardis, but for ourselves. About a hundred years ago, a 26-year-old college student from Wales named Robert or Evan Roberts got permission from his college president to go home to his village to preach his first sermon at the young age of, uh, um, well, he was 26. There were just 17 people there that night when he preached, and he had four points. Confess any known sin to God and put away any wrong done to others. Put away any doubtful habits, obey the Holy Spirit promptly, and confess faith in Christ openly. Uh, People listened, and the Holy Spirit worked. And uh, between his preaching and the preaching of many others and the work of the Spirit of God, in a three-month time span, 100,000 people were added to the churches of Wales. It was a very famous revival. Five years later, uh, a, a book sort of debunking the revival was published, and its main point made by a scholarly author was that of the 100,000 people added to the churches, only 80,000 people remained in the church. So they had only had a quote-unquote 80% success by God in uh, bringing uh, new life into the church. That same revival jumped over to America, and it was the last major national revival we've had since 1905. What's a revival? Not a scheduled week of meetings with special speakers. Not a flash in the pan time of emotionalism. But when times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord and God's people respond with rejoicing in his salvation. There's renewal of love 
to the Savior who first loved us. And there's a longing to see him glorified. And this is a church at Sardis that needs refreshing from the Lord. And aren't we a people who long to be refreshed in the Lord? That's what this is about. And so I want to look with you. And over the span of two weeks, I want to look with you at three things. Why do we need revival Uh, How do we get revived and what do the revived gain? Now tonight we're just going to take that first point. Uh, Why do we need revival? Why did the church at Sardis need to wake up as he puts it? And I think we can find five reasons. And so I have five points to this sermon tonight. Number one, you need revival when you're satisfied with your works. Notice in verse 1 that Jesus begins, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. Uh, He begins with, I know your works. And you can almost see the congregation. Having received all of these letters, these letters traveled through all the cities. uh, As he says, I know your works, you can imagine sort of nudging one another and saying, all right, here it comes. Here's our commendation. I mean, all these other churches, he said something good about them when he talked about their works. So you can, you can imagine they're sort of sitting on the edge of their seat waiting. What's Jesus about to say about us? He knows our works. Perhaps they were thinking in their hearts. You see, it paid off. He knows our works. But they get this shocking rebuke instead. But you are dead. It's amazing. This church, he says, had gained a reputation. It had made a name for itself, a very honorable name in its community. Perhaps it was a church that was noteworthy for its size or for its activity. Perhaps it was a bustling church with a lot going on. Maybe it had a large budget. But but they had made a name For themselves. And Jesus says in doing that you were digging your own grave. That would have been such a shock to them. They look around at all the activity and all the people. And they think we're alive. And Jesus says but you are dead. They were building a name for themselves. Satisfied with their own works. Perhaps they thought that they were justified before God by their works. What do I mean when I say that? That word justification is a Bible word that means that you are pardoned for all your sin and accepted by God as righteous in his sight. But only through the work of Christ, not by your own works. He says, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God, verse 2. Maybe they needed to learn to sing what we all need to learn to sing. Not the labors of my hands could fulfill your law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite, no. Could my tears, tears of repentance. Could my tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone. Thou, O Christ, must save, and Christ alone. And so if we're relying on our own works, then we need to be revived. We need to wake up. If you could contribute even one pebble To your salvation, you would spend the rest of your life searching for just that one right pebble. It would wear you out. But you can't contribute. Christ alone can save. Even the repentance that he calls for here when he says you need to repent. 
is not the kind of repentance that erases your sin as if the death of Christ doesn't do that. And it's not the kind of repentance uh, that merits heaven. Nothing but the life and obedience of Christ can do that. And even our repentance isn't even perfect when we repent. We need to repent of our repentance. Jesus is not saying repent and and it will purchase your salvation. There is no salvation apart from Christ, but there is no salvation in Christ without repentance from relying on dead works to save us. Turn your back on your works and rely on Christ and find life in him, he seems to be saying. So we need, we need refreshment from the Lord when we've been relying on our own works. And secondly, we need revival when we're just going through the motions. Verse 1, he says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Now, why would you be a part of a church if there's no life in it? We might speculate. Why would anybody be part of a church that isn't alive? Well, maybe because of the glories of its past. Maybe at one time it was a thriving community, just like the city of Sardis had been. What we know about the city of Sardis is that at one time, its capital uh, city uh, of the kingdom of Lydia in the 600s was fabulously wealthy. Gold and silver coins were first made in Sardis, panned out of the river there. If you know the expression, rich as Croesus, then you've heard of their king. They were so fabulously well-known for their wealth. But by the first century, by the time of Jesus, the river is panned out. The city has lost its former glory. And maybe Jesus is saying, and just like this, the city, so the church had a fabulous past, but has lost its glory. Maybe it's like a car that's run out of gas but still coasting on empty. Jesus may be saying to them, don't, re- don't, don't rely on the past and the glories of it. Don't just go through the motions in the present. Why would people be part of a place like this if there's no life there? Well, maybe instead of the glories of its past, maybe because of family connections. This is what people do. Baptists remain Baptists because dad and granddad were Baptists. Presbyterians do the same thing. So do non-denominational people. Uh, Christians of all stripes tend to go where their families have always gone and do what their families have always done. And maybe that's why this church continues to exist. But there's no life. On the other hand, maybe they're involved in this church because it was socially advantageous or economically advantageous. You know how it is with big and bustling churches. They tend to draw people who make business connections in church. It helps to know people who go to church in certain places. Maybe they had that. Or maybe it's just this, that religion feels good. It does, after all, feed our pride. We say in our hearts, I'm doing good works, and well, God's going to take notice of that. We're all tempted to that. And though in truth their works are inadequate and there was no heart in it, the the shell was there but not the meat. The the church was like, oh, uh, one of those apples you take off your shelf and it's a red delicious. I mean, it shines bright and you have such high expectations. You anticipate when you eat that apple, it's going to be crisp and clean 
and sweet, like a perfect apple. And you take that first bite and it's mush and it's mealy and there's no sweetness to it. It's fit only for the compost pile. It looks good on the outside, but what a disappointment. Jesus may be saying, well, that's what this church is. You have a reputation, but you are dead and the gospel has been encased in a casket, as it were. And this would have been such a shock to them. It would have been like a punch in the gut to them. But the kind of punch calculated to do the most good. I had a friend named Jay who uh, in 10th grade was in my youth ministry. I was a high school youth minister. And Jay was in my office one day when Robbie, who was the junior high minister who had had Jay for a number of years in his ministry, Uh, Jay and Robbie had this interaction while I just sat back and watched. Jay and Robbie knew each other very well. And Robbie asked Jay some rather pointed questions like, Jay, are you a Christian? Are you sure you're a Christian? What makes you think you are a Christian? Do Do you really love Jesus? I don't see any of that in your life. It was very pointed. It was meant in love, but... It really bothered Jay. What we didn't know is that for years he stewed over that conversation. He was mad that anybody would dare ask him such a question. I mean, he'd been raised in the church. His dad and his granddad were in the church. But years later, having stewed on that question, it forced him to deal with the question. Am I alive in Christ? Am I saved by Jesus? And he came to faith in Christ and he wrote a letter to the pastor of the church and and he explained the situation and he wrote a letter of gratitude and thankfulness that somebody had punched him in the gut, as it were, to force him to ask, am I dead or am I alive? This is so important. We need to ask this question of ourselves. Are we going through the motions of Christianity or are we genuine Christians? Here's the kind of questions we ought to ask ourselves. Are we praying what we don't really mean? Or are we praying to be heard by people and not by God? Are we reading the Bible when we read it? To uh, come to Jesus for life? Or are we reading the Bible in order to be better Bible students so that we can be better Bible teachers so that we can be thought well of in the church? Are we singing without thinking? Or are we not even singing at all because there's no song in our heart? In worship, are we attending but not attentive to God? And when leading in worship, are we preoccupied not with God but with not embarrassing ourselves? Do we have a head filled with information but a heart devoid of affection and a life absent of love? In other words, are we just playing a part? As Jesus once said of the Pharisees, do you honor God with your lips, but your heart is far from him? Those are very searching questions. And you understand that I've just been confessing my temptations to you. Those are all my temptations to be simply going through the motions. Wait till I start on your temptations. No. 
Listen, he's not saying to them, he's not saying to them, what you really need is more works. You need to do more works. He's not saying that. He's saying you need a different quality to your life. Not works done to impress God, but works that flow from real love for God because you know the love of God in Christ for you. Works done out of gratitude because you are saved and have been given life, not works done in order to get saved or to gain life. And so he says to them, you need to be revived if you're going through the motions. Thirdly, you need to be revived when you don't think you need to be revived. You know, in verse 2, Jesus says to them, you can almost hear him shouting, wake up! Wake up, and it's a, it's a present tense imperative. It's a command with continuing significance. Stay alert, Jesus is saying. Keep on being awake, Jesus is saying. Become somebody who is watchful. Why do I say you need to be revived when you don't think you need to be revived? Well, consider a sleeping man. When a man says, I am asleep, he's more than half awake. It's only a man who is half awake who can say the words, I'm asleep. It's the man who doesn't know he's asleep, who's snoring along, who isn't awake enough to speak. And the parallel in the spiritual life is this. The surest sign that you are asleep spiritually, that you are dead spiritually, is that you are unconscious of that fact. Because to be spiritually alive is to realize that you carry around with you your old man, what Paul calls this body of death. To be alive is to realize you need life. To be dead is to not even know it. And so if you're saying, well, I don't need to be revived. Those people do. You might be the very person who needs to wake up. In the fourth place, you need to be revived when you're not feeding your soul on the gospel. Notice the counsel that Jesus gives them when he says, wake up, verse 2, he says, and strengthen what remains, verse 3, and remember what you have received and heard and keep it. Jesus says, we need to nurture and encourage and we need to keep on remembering But they've gone into spiritual decline and they've become forgetful. They've become weak in their failure to keep on remembering. And so the psalmist, as we open the worship service, said to his own soul, Oh, bless the Lord and forget not all his benefits. He's actually talking to himself. Reminding himself of all the Lord's benefits that he must not forget because it's so easy to do. Maybe these people had lost sight of the cross of Christ, and they've forgotten to feed themselves on the banquet of his love in the gospel of grace. Maybe they had forgotten the story of our Lord Jesus, that we have every spiritual blessing in Jesus. Maybe they'd forgotten the goodness of God in giving his own beloved son, of whom he says, this is my beloved son, and with him I am well pleased. That's Jesus. That God gave him in exchange for our souls. Maybe they'd forgotten that 
Jesus was made like us in every way yet without sin. And he came to do the will of God. And he came to do it. To be born under the law. To satisfy the demands of God's law. To die our death. In our place. And to live our life. In our place. So that we could be pardoned. And accepted as righteous. By the work of Christ. Maybe they've forgotten that God raised Jesus from the dead and, and raised him into heaven and seated him above all authorities and gave him to rule as king and head over his church for our well-being and that we, the Bible says, being united to Jesus through faith, have been seated with Christ in heavenly places. Maybe they've forgotten all the good things that we have in the gospel. Forgiveness, reconciliation, and peace with the Father. Adoption into his beloved family. The, the, the Holy Spirit given as a down payment. Guaranteeing our everlasting inheritance. Maybe they've forgotten all that and they simply need to be reminded again and again. Aren't you like that? You know why it's good to come weekly to worship and hear the gospel preached. And to partake frequently of the Lord's Supper. Because this is God's reminder to us of the death of Jesus for us. And Christians, when they come to worship, don't need a lot of new information. We don't really come to worship for every week to gather new information as much as to remember what we've already known. To hear again the story. Because we are prone, not just weekly, but even daily. To forget. So we need to be in worship regularly. We need to partake of the Lord's Supper regularly. To be reminded that God gave his son for us. And that he is ours and we are his. We have everything in Christ alone. Maybe they've forgotten to feed themselves. On the goodness of God's grace. And so he says to them strengthen yourself strengthen others and remember and don't forget so you need to be revived when you haven't been feasting on the banquet of God's love and finally you need to be revived when you've quit listening to and obeying Jesus in verses three and four he says not only remember but keep it keep it and it's present tense again keep on keeping Keep on keeping. And keeping what? Keeping the gospel, which is your salvation. Some people there had remembered and kept it. He describes them in verse 4, and we need to join them. He says, among the smoldering ashes, there are a few glowing members, a remnant, a few names in Sardis, he says. People who have not soiled their garments That's how he describes them. They're alive. They're truly alive. They're awake. They're remembering. They're keeping. And now the way he describes them is their garments aren't soiled. They have clean garments. The idea changes. It's the same people. Now, why are their garments not clean? I mean, why why are their garments clean? Their garments are clean Because they were willing to have them washed in the blood of the Lamb. Why do I say that? It's not their personal perfection. 
that has kept their garment spotless. It's that they were willing to come again and again and have, have their garment, as it were, washed white in the blood of the Lamb. Why do I say that? Well, this is why we read Revelation 7 in our scripture reading. In verses 9 and 14, it says this, a great multitude, you remember, that no one can number from every nation and all tribes and peoples or languages are standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they're clothed in white robes. And in verse 14, it says this, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's the only way to get and to keep Clean. But some people in Sardis have soiled garments. What does that mean? It means the filth of their sins clings to them. I know this is very earthy, but we said this in the book of Philippians, in Philippians chapter 3, and I'm going to use this same expression again uh, to speak in an earthy way about our sin because the Apostle Paul does in Philippians 3. But a few years back, our dog's bottom was messy with dung. And he brought it into the house when we had guests over and he tried to clean himself on our then soiled carpets. And I was about to throw a fit. And my wife very sweetly reminded me that we had just at her instigation, just purchased this carpet shampooer that she could simply bring out and clean the carpets up with. It was a wonderful thing. She was very patient with that dog, and that dog did spend the day outside the camp. (laughs) Paul says in Philippians that he gathers up all his good works, and he piles them up, and he counts them but dung before God and he flees from them in order to be found in Christ and not having a righteousness of his own through works of the law through obedience but to to be found in Christ and to have a righteousness which comes from God through faith in Christ because it's the righteousness of Jesus this is how you get and keep clean clean friends but this church won't come to Jesus for cleansing, and so they have soiled garments that aren't white and washed white in the blood of the Lamb. And so they're not hearing and listening to and obeying Jesus when he says, come to me to be clean. But being clean will change you. Being made clean before God and Jesus will also be accompanied by a real life change, a life that's lived differently. There's some wonderful examples of this in revivals from the past. In the 1920s in Ulster, Ireland, shipyard workers who were uh, refreshed by the good news of the gospel preached to them went home and took off their shelves the tools that they had stolen and began to return them to their employer So much so that the shipyard employer had to build new sheds to hold all the tools being returned by these repentant shipyard workers responding to the goodness of God's grace to them in Christ. Wouldn't you have liked to have been there in 1904 in the Welsh revival that came across in 1905 to America? In 1904, the the horses that uh, pulled the, the coal trains quit doing their job. Why? Because the men used to get them to do their work by cursing at them and kicking them. 
But the men had heard the good news of the gospel and responded and they had quit cursing and beating their animals and they couldn't get the the horses to do the work that was necessary. That's what listening to Jesus will do. It will cause you to be forgiven and to be changed. But Jesus says in verse 3 with a warning, and this is where we close, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now that's a picture they understood. They understood it because Sardis as a city was built 1,500 feet up on the top of a mountain that had three sheer cliffs all the way down to the valley floor. And, uh, and on the south side, that was the only access. It was a rough, narrow road up this steep incline that was easily defended by any army. So Sardis felt very safe and secure. They had the nickname Impregnable. And because of that sense of safety, they left those three cliffs unguarded. And twice in their history, they were overtaken by soldiers mounting those cliffs. In 549, the Persian army under Cyrus came and soldiers climbed 1,500 feet up those rock walls and took Sardis. And if that was enough for them... Over 300 years later, in 218, under Alexander, or Antiochus the Great, the same thing happened. And unexpectedly, like a thief in the night, they were overrun by these soldiers. That, Jesus is saying, might happen to you. You may suddenly be surprised when I come. He's warning them, you're, you're not ready to meet me. Why? Because you're satisfied with your works, but not life in me. You're content to go through the motions, but to gain a reputation for yourself. You don't think you need to be revived. You've been neglecting my gospel. You aren't hearing and obeying Jesus. You won't come to me to be cleansed. And Jesus says, don't be surprised when I come to you and you're judged. Well, if that's the case, friends, where do we get this refreshment, this revival? You get it from the one who warns you. You get it from Jesus himself. We need him to do what only he can do for us. And that is give us life by his spirit. And so we're always in a posture of dependency saying, oh, Lord, have mercy on me. Let's be that kind of people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, have mercy on us and forgive us and unite us to Jesus and grant us true life in Christ. For your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you to stand as we close in uh, Him. Again, this is a prayer. O oh, breath of life, come sweeping through us. It's a, it's a prayer asking for the Spirit of God to revive us.